Would you open God's word with me this evening? We're in Matthew chapter 8, as we have been since Saturday evening. Uh, And tonight, after hearing about a leper, the willingness of Christ to heal the centurion and the authority that Christ had, the amazement of the crowd. And then last night, the authority and the word spoken, the authority to heal. Tonight, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Do please keep those verses open in front of you if you can. Now, I remember someone once asking me if I knew of anything that was guaranteed to make me cry. And I wonder if you have anything like that. I remember when they asked me, it was a very personal question. I felt like my privacy had been invaded. But let me tell you one of them. I think whenever I see a video of people receiving the Bible in their own language for the first time, I can't help shedding one at least one manly tear. Why do we find moments like that so beautiful, videos like that so compelling? It's because we love it when people find it easier to come to Jesus, don't we? We rejoice when the hurdles are pulled down. We feel how wrong it is when anyone makes it harder to receive Jesus. And surely that's a good instinct. Jesus says, Matthew 11, that he's come to bring a light and easy yoke. Jesus hates it, Matthew 23, when people put burdens on other people's shoulders in the name of religion. We feel how wrong it is when people make it harder to receive the gospel. And so many of us feel like the best thing we can do is make it easier for other people to come to Jesus, right? We long to make that easier. Okay, so given that we want to make it easier, what do we make of the reading we just heard? What do we make of how Jesus acts there? People come to him so willing, and yet he doesn't seem to be trying to make it as easy as possible. People come to him saying they'll follow, and he doesn't simply just say, yes, get stuck in. He seems, if anything, to be putting the hurdles up, doesn't he? What do we make of that reading? The theme for the convention is grateful. Are you grateful for these verses? Do you think the teacher of the law in verse 19 is grateful after meeting Jesus? Do you think that this disciple in verse 21 is grateful? But you know, I think we will be grateful when we understand what's going on in these verses. When we let the real Jesus of scripture speak and shatter all our illusions when we prioritize him instead of the homebrewed Jesuses up there who always do what we expect, I think we will be grateful. Because yes, it is so wrong when people make the gospel harder to receive. But you know, that's not the only way to twist the gospel. You can twist the gospel by adding conditions, putting up hurdles. But you can also twist the gospel by never mentioning the cost of following 
Jesus. Never being clear about the challenge that it will be to be a disciple. By making holiness sound optional. Or making it seem like obedience will never threaten our comfort. As if we can worship Jesus in a way that leaves all our idols intact. When we do that, we really are twisting the gospel. And so my prayer is that we will come to treasure these verses because in them, the Holy Spirit is speaking to show us Jesus as he really is. And without passages like this, we won't know the real Jesus. And especially on a mission night, if we don't have verses like this, we won't be able to go with Jesus where he's calling us to follow. So it's my prayer that tonight, even now, as we come to his word, the Holy Spirit would show us the truth of who Jesus is. And he'd show us the truth about our world so that we can follow Jesus in mission. What I want us to see tonight is that we are following the homeless son of man whose call is life in a world of death. So that's my first point for us this evening. We're following the homeless son of man. If you look at verse 18, Jesus is on the move. We saw from Ellie last night that he is the Isaiah 53 servant. Come to bear our infirmities. Come with awesome power to heal. And even though that's who he is, he isn't setting up shop, is he? He doesn't establish a hospital and decide to clear out all of the bad health problems one place at a time. He's on the move in verse 18. And as the crowds are getting close, Jesus says to the disciples, get the boat. He wants to move on. Why? What's driving him? Well, let's zoom out and think a little bit about this gospel that Matthew has written and the shape of it. So if you were to look at Matthew 4.23, which might come up on the screen, and then also look at Matthew 9.35, you'd see that they're almost identical verses. Both of them talk about Jesus going through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons. And so everything that comes between those two verses is a record of the kingdom of God coming in word and deed as the king of the kingdom speaks and acts. And so that's what you find. Matthew 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching. Then Matthew 8 to 9, this brilliant highlights reel we've been enjoying of Jesus at work, unleashing his authority in a world that needs it. So you see, Jesus' ministry is not aimless or sedentary. He has a focus, he has a mission, and that's what he's about. It's not yet the mission to all nations that we'll find at the end of the gospel. It's what James mentioned a couple of nights ago, the mission he talks about in chapter 10, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so, verse 18, Jesus is a moving target. And just as the boat is getting ready, verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What will Jesus do with this zeal, with this desire to follow? What will he do with this teacher of the law? Now, for a moment, just think about these teachers of the law. So often we mentally bracket them, teachers of the law, scribes, you might be using another translation. We bracket them as the villains, don't we? They're always on the wrong side of Jesus somehow. But life isn't a pantomime. 
And this is not necessarily a boo-hiss moment. I think if any of us met this teacher of the law, we might be impressed by someone who's devoted to God's word and living it out. Someone who might be truly impressive to us. And in fact, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Jesus is interested in people like these. In Matthew 13, he talks about how when a teacher of the law comes to follow Jesus, they're like someone who brings out of the storeroom new treasures as well as old. So Jesus is interested in people like this. What will Jesus do with this zeal? I work for a church, and if someone like this comes forward and says they would like to serve, I think, subject to safeguarding checks, I'm biting their hand off. But Jesus is much wiser. Verse 20, Jesus replies, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus isn't saying no, but to quote the title this talk has been given, he is saying no small print. You have to know what following me means. Because we're following the homeless Son of Man. Foxes have dens. They may range around in the dark and knock over your wheelie bins and make horrifying noises in the night. Ever heard them do that? But they do have dens where they can retreat and rest and settle. The birds can fly wherever they like. They can migrate great distances, but they do have nests where they can settle down somewhere secure with their eggs or hatchlings or whatever. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man in this world, he hasn't even got a pillow. He has nowhere to lay his head. When Jesus says that, he is telling us the truth about our world. He's saying that our world as it is now is inhospitable to him. It's in spiritual opposition to him. And that's why he isn't comfortable in it. He has nowhere to lay his head. Now, when Jesus calls himself the son of man, that can just mean human being. He could just be saying, this guy. But the more you go through the gospel, the more it becomes clear that he means much more, much more. And in fact, he's talking about Daniel 7 and a couple of verses that will come up on the screen, familiar perhaps to some of us. He's talking about this mysterious son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days to receive authority and glory and sovereign power. This human being who turns out to be worshipped by all people and ruler over every nation. That's who Jesus is saying he is. And here's the point. That Daniel 7, son of man, has nowhere to lay his head in this world. He hasn't even got a pillow. He has nowhere to nest, nowhere to settle. Even in his mother's arms, he was born to be exposed to the cruelty of our world. He's the homeless Messiah. We sang about it in that amazing hymn, my favorite hymn, in life no house, no home my Lord on earth might have. In death, no friendly tomb, but what a stranger gave. What may I say? Hem was his home, but mine the tomb wherein he lay. He's the homeless son of man. Now he won't be homeless forever, That Daniel 7 vision is all about the moment when all creation will become his kingdom and he will settle here at last. 
when all things in earth are as it is in heaven, when he comes to return and restore this creation to be a new creation, finally, this world will be a place where he gets comfortable. But not yet. And the same is true for us. For now, Jesus is the homeless son of man. And if we're following him, then we can't settle down either. We can't get comfortable in the world as it is now. Knowing that, will we still follow him? Even if it means that we're never as comfortable as it could be. Even if it means that following him comes with a cost. Even if our giving means a smaller mortgage for a smaller house. Even if it means saying no to long-term comfort in this life. Will we still follow him then? Ask yourself those questions. And as you do, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you, to sift your motives and desires. Because so often we come and we think we're willing, but what's under the surface is not the same. This teacher of the law comes to Jesus and looks so willing. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus asks, will you? Even when you find out that following me means no comfort, no stability, nowhere to lay your head, will you still follow then? So often we say we want Jesus, but the truth is we want something else more, and we want him as a means to that other end. So often we say we'll follow Jesus, but the truth is we've already set the destination, and we just want Jesus to get us there faster. But we're following the homeless son of man. He won't settle down in this world as it is now. The world we live in is spiritually inhospitable to him and does not receive him. So we can't get comfortable in it. And yet the son of man came to this world, this world that rejected him even though he made it. Why? He came to bring life to a world of death. Here's my second point. His call is life in a world of death. Verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So this is a disciple and he's therefore committed already to Jesus, or at least he thinks he is. And he's heard what Jesus has said. Okay, yeah, nowhere to lay your head, I understand. But now Jesus, you've got to understand, I have some other things that I need to sort out. I have family needs, responsibilities. There's there's order and priority here. He says, verse 21, first let me go. Yes, Jesus is calling. Yes, we must follow. But first, Jesus, don't you see? I need to deal with this first. And the way Jesus responds sounds almost unbearably harsh. Verse 22, but Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's a huge shock because what Jesus is doing is saying that his call on this man's life comes above the call of family. Jesus is cutting across the priorities and obligations that family is imposing on this man. That's the shock. If we're following Jesus, nothing else comes first before him. This disciple is saying, Jesus, you need to understand this responsibility, my family, that comes first. And Jesus is saying to him, no, you need to understand my call comes first. Follow me. Follow me. 
Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus. In Matthew 15, Jesus is furious about the way people use religious tradition to avoid honoring their parents. And in the name of their financial giving to the temple, end up leaving their parents to suffer and go without. Jesus hates that. Jesus is not anti-family. He made families as a key part of our creation. In fact, he wants to draw us in to the true family with the true and perfect heavenly father. But what's going on here is that Jesus will not let us put family before him. He's exposing our idolatry of family. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, what he's saying is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. So what Jesus is saying is, when you make an idol, even as something as good as family, it renders you spiritually dead before you're ever physically dead. That's what idolatry always does. Put anything that isn't God first. Elevate a created thing like family over the creator. And you will have cut yourself off from the God who is life. And if you cut yourself off from him, if you walk out on him, then you're left with nowhere else to go but death. That means that our world of idols is a world of death. And again, Jesus is telling us the truth about our world. Let the dead bury their own dead means we live in a world of the spiritually dead where people are giving themselves to what isn't God and therefore cut off from true life. We are surrounded in our world by spiritual death. And although everyone we see is physically alive, they won't be forever. Jesus is saying, don't just join the march to the grave. Follow me. Don't just join the march to the grave. Follow me. Hear my call. Go where I send you. I think this is such a powerful challenge to us, particularly if we're here as believers. See, it can be quite easy, perhaps even a little comfortable, to hear Jesus take on idols that we know are bad for us, idols that we see our culture giving itself to and that we know we need to reject, those idols of comfort or self or sexual adventure or whatever it is or money, and we we can nod and go, yeah, you, you give it to them. But here, Jesus is speaking about an idol that might be closer to our hearts, might be sitting in our blind spots, one we need to think about. See, today it's so clear in our culture, in this country, that the God-given pattern of family life is under attack. Our lifestyles, our assumptions, our policies, our priorities, all of these conspire to erode the life-giving potential of family. And so, actually, we're not equipped to be fathers and mothers. We're trained from very young to see family as a burden. Your parents are embarrassing when you're a child. They get uncomfortable and inconvenient when you're older. And so what happens is we drink that in and families suffer. And don't we know that when families break down like that, so much more brokenness follows in its wake. We see abusive or absent parents and the massive damage that does for people all through their lives. We see the way that elderly people are shunted out of sight, out of mind, until they really are out of mind. These are tragedies. 
And as believers who take God's word seriously, we want to take a stand against that, don't we? We want to contend for the goodness and beauty of family life. We want to speak of it. We want to uphold it. We want to tell the world that these things are good because God made them. And we're especially excited when any politician or figure in authority tells us they care about it too. Now listen, I think all of that that I've just said is true. And I think contending for family is important and good. I think it's what Jesus is calling us as his church to do in 21st century Britain. But here's the thing. Here's what he's challenging us over tonight. Even as we do that, will we still follow him first? Or... In resisting a culture that devalues families, will we make an idol of families? That won't honor him. He hates our idols even more than our culture hates families because of how they threaten us. Now, I have to say that probably for many of us, following Jesus faithfully might mean giving more to our family than our culture expects. But even in this country, we're aware of what it looks like. Think of the international Perhaps a student who comes to faith and their first thought is, what will my parents think? In all sorts of parts of the world, that idolatry of family is very powerful. It's very powerful here too. So how would we respond? How would we follow Jesus? Well, here's a quick takeaway. We've gone wrong on this if people who don't have neat, straightforward biological family situations don't feel like they can flourish and belong in our churches. If that's happened, then that might mean that we're too wedded to our world of death. If someone is single, either because they've never been married and wanted to be, or because they've recently been widowed, and they somehow feel like their place in church is less secure, that's a terrible sign. Now look, biological family is a good gift. But it's a good gift because it points to something else. The true family of the church, which has God the Father as Father and Jesus as older brother. Where we follow Jesus first, where the water of baptism is thicker than blood. That's why Jesus has always been good news for people whose biological families are bad news. And in fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, he'll talk about how there are those who are single for the sake of the kingdom. Those who forfeit the prestige and privilege of having biological children. And even though that experience might not be typical in our churches, it might not be what everyone undergoes, that is something that blesses everyone. Because when people who are single live for Jesus, they are a living reminder in our churches that Jesus is calling us to something even deeper and better and more lasting than family. Because he's calling us to himself. The extent to which living like that is possible in our churches, honored in our churches, is a reflection of whether we're really hearing Jesus on this. And if we can do that as well as contend for the family and its goodness, then we really are following him. I know in a gathering like this, many people watching online, many of us might be struggling with our families, perhaps with families we wish we had and don't families we do and wish we didn't. Either way, this is a liberation to know that Jesus and his call comes first. Now actually, some people explain verse 21 carefully. They say, first let me go and bury my father, is an expression from the region. 
It may not necessarily mean that he has a shovel in hand and the funeral's in half an hour and he's got to dig the grave. It could be an expression meaning, let me help my parents as they live out their days. And if that's true, that could mean that this man is putting Jesus' call on ice for potentially decades. Now, that might be true. I happen to think it probably is. But you notice that Matthew doesn't say that. He doesn't explain this expression to us, although he could have. Why? Because he wants us to hear Jesus put it as starkly as this. Because Jesus' call is life in a world of death. And you know, Jesus has come to empty graves, not fill them. That's why he's in this world of death. He has come to walk to and then through death, carrying out to the other side all those who trust in him, leading them into eternal life. That's why he's here. That's what he longs to do. Will that set your agenda? He's saying, don't just join the march to the grave. Follow me. And if we're following him, we can't get comfortable in a world of death where people are spiritually dead and don't even know it, are giving themselves to things that rob them of life. They, like us, need to hear Jesus' call to turn away from every empty thing. Because Jesus is dying the kind of death that brings life and inviting us to join him. Will we? We're following a homeless son of man. And his call is life in a world of death. No small print with him. It sounds blunt. Maybe it even sounds harsh. But remember, we can twist the gospel just as badly by never mentioning the cost as well as adding conditions. Jesus has not promised comfort in this world. So let's not act like he has and let's not give others the impression that he has. How can we be comfortable in a world of spiritual death. God forbid that we make Jesus into a spiritual life coach who just helps us cling to our idols more tightly and walk more surely to the grave. No, let the real Jesus speak to you this evening because he's not putting up hurdles. He's shattering the illusions that would keep us from knowing the real Jesus and following him where he goes. Now, Matthew has written this account in a really open-ended way. We don't know how they reacted. We don't know if this teacher of the law went, okay, nowhere to lay my head, I'm in. We don't know, he might have done that. We don't know about this disciple. If they said, you know what, you're right, Jesus. Following you comes first. We don't know how they actually responded because the real question Matthew wants us to ask is, how will you respond? How will I respond? respond? What will we do with what Jesus is saying? Will we let Jesus challenge us like this? And you might be listening to this and thinking, gosh, this is a hard word from Jesus. Why is he talking so much about costs and challenge? Isn't it all meant to be about grace and his generosity and all the good things he gives me? Well, yes, it is about grace. And because it's by grace alone that we're saved, because of that, Jesus has the authority and power to challenge us the way he does. That's something powerful and counterintuitive about the grace of God. Because you and I contribute nothing to this, there are no limits 
to what Jesus can ask of us. See, if it were a two-sided contract, I did a little, God did a little, then I would always have room to bargain with him. I'd always be able to say, now look, Lord, I've done this, so what are you going to do for me? Or I'd always be able to say, Lord, you can't ask me to do that. That's just too much, not after all I've done. If it was two-sided like that, then I could bargain with God. And the truth is, many people, even Christians, do make bargains with God. They do act as if their obedience means he owes them something. And people who do that are invariably left bitter and resentful because they don't get the thing they feel that Jesus owes them. If it were two-sided, then we could bargain with him. Then we could say, no, 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 I won't do that because after all, I have done this. No, grace is gloriously one-sided. I bring nothing but my need, nothing but my helplessness, nothing but the sin I need forgiving in the first place. And because of that, there are no limits to what Jesus can ask. Because he's saved me by grace alone. I belong to him, body and soul, every bit of me. And there is nothing in my life that is off limits to his core. And if you're trusting him, that's true for you as well. And it's because of grace, not despite it. This has always been one of the counterintuitive things about grace. Romans 6, Paul anticipates the objection. Well, okay, if it's by grace, then surely we keep on sinning. And then grace keeps increasing. By no means. Says. Or at the Reformation, some people criticized salvation by grace alone because they thought, well, look, people are never going to obey if they don't have to earn their way, are they? Both those objections show how little we understand grace, how counterintuitive it is to us. Because there is nothing we bring to it, there is nothing Jesus can't ask of us. As he will say in Matthew chapter 10, freely you have received, freely give. Tonight is mission night. And perhaps this is a surprising passage for the Lord to bring. Perhaps it would have been easier to crack out a brilliant biography so that each one of us could imagine the deeds of heroism we might do in his name. And by the way, do crack out a good biography. It's amazing to read them. But the Lord has given us these verses because in them he is calling us. He is calling each one of us, calling us to see him for who he is and calling us to go where he's calling us to follow. So will we? Jesus is calling. We follow the homeless son of man and his call is life in a world of death. So in a moment, we're going to get practical about that. We're going to sing another song, and then Jonty's going to come up, and he's going to help us think about the shape that our response might take. Because if Jesus is calling us, then responding to him is something all of us might do. But as we finish, let me ask you this. Have we learned to see the world the way Jesus does? In these verses, he's telling us the truth about the world. Do we see it? He says, there's nowhere for the Son of Man to lay his head. So do we see that the world is spiritually inhospitable to Jesus? Or do we think that we can settle down in it and get comfortable? He says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying that this is a world of the spiritually dead. And can we live in that world happily? He's saying, don't just join the march to the grave. Follow me.
Do we see the truth of what our world is like? So desperately in need of God because we keep cutting ourselves off from him. We keep choosing death by choosing idols. And yet for all that, so precious to God that he stepped into the world in Jesus to save it. And in fact, to choose death for us so that we might live. Do we see the world like that? Because when we do, it might mean going on cross-cultural mission to the ends of the earth. It might mean taking the mission opportunities that are literally on your doorstep. But either way, we will not do it until we have learned to see the world that Jesus says is there. We won't follow him until we see the world as it is. We're about to sing a really powerful hymn with lines that floor me every time I sing them. With none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. As we sing these words, make space in your heart for the Holy Spirit to convict you and perhaps ask yourself, Can we live as if that's true and not hear the call of Jesus, life in a world of death? Can we live as if that's true and not go where he is calling us and not follow him so that others can hear his life-giving word and rejoice in him? Let me pray for us. Lord, come now by your Holy Spirit and do the work in our hearts that we need. Convict us, clarify your truth for us, show us the face of Jesus in his beautiful honesty and his dying love for the world and his risen authority over it. And even now as we sing, even now as we meditate on what your call means for us, Lord, I pray, prompt us, direct us, show us what you would have us do and then soften our hearts to do it. That we might go with you the homeless son of man and find life with you in your death and stand with you on the last day when this world finally becomes a place where you can settle. We ask it in your name. Amen.